This is EntreEd Talk, the podcast for entrepreneurial educators by entrepreneurial educators. We are your hosts, Toy Hirschman and Amber Ravenscroft. This podcast is created by the National Consortium for Entrepreneurship Education, or EntreEd for short. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome, friends, to the EntreEd Talk podcast. We are beyond excited today to have with us author, entrepreneur, CEO, and great friend, Gary Shoniger. Gary Shoniger is an internationally recognized thought leader in the field of entrepreneurial mindset education. His message has influenced a broad audience from academic institutions and economic development organizations to government and nonprofit clients worldwide, including the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation, the Cisco Entrepreneur Institute, the Colombian Ministry of Education, the U.S. State Department, and the European Commission. As founder and CEO of the Entrepreneurial Learning Initiative, Gary led the development of the Ice House Entrepreneurship Program, which has been recognized by the Kaufman Foundation as redefining entrepreneurship education in classrooms and communities around the world. The Ice House Program has been featured at the United Nations General Assembly, the Papal Council for Peace and Justice at the Vatican, and the European Commission in Brussels. Gary, along with Pulitzer nominee Clifton Talbert, is also the co-author of Who Owns the Ice House? Eight Life Lessons from an Unlikely Entrepreneur, an international bestseller described as required reading for humanity. And I can personally attest to that one. With his focus on the entrepreneurial mindset, Gary has presented numerous keynotes, workshops, and training programs throughout the U.S. and abroad. Gary, welcome, welcome, welcome. We are thrilled and honored to have you here today, and we know that you have taken time out of your extraordinarily busy schedule to be with us, so welcome. I'm happy to be here, Toy. Thank you. So I thought that it would be really great to get started um, and just have you take a few moments to share a bit about your personal entrepreneurial journey. You know, what started you off on your path to great success as an entrepreneur, author, and CEO, and how your life experiences have sort of built to where you are today. You know, I became an entrepreneur like a lot of entrepreneurs out of necessity. And I, I literally started in the late 1980s with a borrowed ladder. I strapped on the roof of my car and went door to door in a wealthy neighborhood where I'm not from, offering to clean the leaves out of people's gutters. And I didn't know what the word entrepreneur meant. I didn't identify as an entrepreneur. I, I just, you know, I, I didn't do well in school. I never went to college. I, I just, you know, was tired of these mind numbing minimum wage job, searching for a better way. And I, I had enough good sense to pay attention to what people asked for, to deliver on what I promised, to, you know, to try to do a good job, be conscientious, show up on time. And slowly but surely over time, like that gutter cleaning evolved into what would become a multi-million dollar uh, a business, you know, design and, 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 and build a, a real estate development company. But that's sort of how I learned how to be an entrepreneur. But what happened along the way was that I began to recognize that entrepreneurs think differently. And that, you know, it, this occurred to me one day in 1991 when I read a story in the newspaper about a man that had lost his job, was afraid of losing his home, his wife was working two, you know, minimum wage jobs somewhere, uh, you know, they don't know what to do. They're going to, the unemployment's running out. 
And I thought, you know, certainly this guy knows how to do something useful. I had learned to now see opportunities everywhere, yet this guy seemed to be blind to them. And that original sort of was an aha moment for me. Like if I could somehow deconstruct the mindset, the underlying logic that drives entrepreneurial behavior, that this could be useful to people. And, and you know, useful beyond starting a business, that it could be useful in a much broader way. I mean, when you, when you think about entrepreneurs, like, you know, they seem to be like, really creative, uh, critical thinkers. They're able to solve problems. You know, they're highly resilient. They, they, they seem to have the attributes that we want to see in our children, in our students, in our workforce. Like, how does that happen, right? And, and so that really set me on this journey to deconstruct the mindset in a way that could be useful to understand it and articulate it in a way that could be useful to others. And, and so that, that's kind of where the journey began in 1991. I'm, you know, kind of dating myself, but I think that's what 20, I don't know, what's the math there? 27 years, 28 years. Yeah. Wow. Oh, quite frightening. <laughs> I'm really interested in the, what you said and we always stray, but we've talked a little bit, you and I before about changing the definition of entrepreneurship and how it's the, the idea of recognizing opportunity. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I know you have views on that that's very different from many people in this entrepreneurial space. Well, yeah, you know, I'm saying something that's, that's a bit novel, to be fair, Amber. It's a good question. But, but, you know, the word entrepreneur came about at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution in the 1700s. And it's, what's interesting, and it's just a quick sidebar, is the word arose at the exact time in history when we needed a word that would distinguish between someone who organized the work and someone who did the work. Because prior to that, we were all self-employed. But really, to returning to your main question, Amber, I ur urge people to think of entrepreneurship not as a business discipline, but as a behavioral phenomenon from which business formation occurs, right? And so if you try to understand the behavior starting from a business perspective, we create what, you know, a bounded rationality. It actually prevents us from understanding. And if you look at it from a behavioral perspective, then it starts to make sense. Essentially what it comes down to is I, I think of, you know, the purpose of a business is to distribute useful things to the world. The purpose of entrepreneurship is to discover useful things. I right? love that. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, not everyone wants to start a business. I think we're now at three people per thousand will start a business at any given time moment in time. And that's down from seven, which we should all be concerned about, right? Mm -hmm. So we've got to define it and embrace it and understand it in a way that goes beyond business creation. And if we think, you know, I like to define it as an opportunity discovery process. It's a simple definition that enables 
everyone to buy in, to, to embrace it. I mean, who doesn't want to discover an opportunity, right? Yep. And the interesting thing is that, you know, when we find a way to leverage our natural interests, and by the way, like you can't manufacture interest. It's innate, right? Mm -hmm. So when we find a way to sort of match up our natural interests with our natural abilities and apply that to something that impacts the world in a positive way, like something bigger than ourselves, human flourishing occurs. That's so, so true. And I love that you use the word innate because we all have that, that same feeling, whether we go to work as, you know, a, a small business owner, a startup, or if we go to work for somebody else, we all want to feel that way. We all want to be empowered. And we, you know, we broadcast to a large audience of educators. And the question is, you know, at what point do we fall off, you know, the engagement cliff where, is there even is there even one to fall off of when it comes to schools? And I know you work with with tons of schools all across the nation, and we and, and we do as well. And at EntreEd, and we see this kind of lack. You know, there, there are some amazing things happening. You know, I was so fortunate to to witness one of your trainings, which was um, was awesome with a group of teachers. But for the most part, schools don't encourage that. And and I would be neat if you would speak to you know how how do we get teachers to break out of that mold and, and start to see how valuable it is when you just give kids even a tiny bit of that opportunity recognition process of that, of that being able to sort of choose and, and go in a direction that their innate interests want them to go, you know, because we're just not doing that in schools and it's, it's very, very frustrating. Well, you're asking some big questions there, Toy. And I want to start, by saying, you know, the world is waking up to the idea that an entrepreneurial mindset is essential for everyone to adapt and thrive in the 21st century. And governments, national governments around the world are making entrepreneurial education, entrepreneurship education, a national priority. And, and sadly, in, you know, in the United States, we are lagging behind, Right. But, but more importantly, you know, drilling down one layer from there, Toy, what, what you're asking is like, you know, I, it's not always easy for educators to understand the ways in which our systems of education unwittingly or otherwise inhibit the development of entrepreneurial attitudes, behaviors, and skills. Now, what's so interesting is once you sort of understand entrepreneurship as discovery, requires discovery skills. These are skills that anyone can learn to develop. They're, they're IQ independent, they're situation independent. We're nat we have a natural innate proclivity. These are the very same skills that educators have identified as the so-called 21st century skills. Creativity, the critical thinking, the communication, the collaboration, the resilience, the financial literacy, the all of these things, you know, depending on whatever, you know, list you're looking at. But they're also the skills, the so-called soft skills that employers demand. Yet we fail to recognize the extent to which our systems of education inhibit 
the development of this discovery skills. I'm writing a piece about this right now about curiosity, right? A preschooler will ask 25 to 50 questions an hour. And almost the minute they show up in school, that stops. Yep. And by fifth grade, they're asking essentially no questions per hour, zero. And then and, and so this is, you know, no surprise, this is where Gallup, you know, comes in the Gallup and student engagement. This is where the student engagement cliff begins, right? They just lose interest in learning. And, and it compounds because, you know, the students, you know, we're, we're relying on rote memorization and standardized testing. That is, you know, the, the intellectual equivalent of waterboarding. <laughs> and, and then so we, we then, you know, double down on, our, on the use of carrots and sticks to incentivize learning without acknowledging the long-term impact of extrinsic rewards and the detrimental effects they have on our intrinsic desire to learn, right? So it just keeps compounding. And as Tony Wagner said, you know, our systems of education, are, we're, we're producing innovators and entrepreneurs by accident rather than by design. I mean, we could do, you know, four hours on this alone, but. Well, it's in spite of ourselves, you know, it's in, in spite of ourselves, we're producing them. Thank goodness that that's at right, least, right, right. they're slipping through the cracks because the positive psychology around, like it doesn't even exist in our school system. We, we, we basically shame kids if they don't do exactly what they're told to do. And yeah, they're, we're told to follow the rules. Right. I, I posted this morning. I read a great book uh, recently by a, an author named Ian Leslie. And he said, a society that values order above all else will seek to suppress curiosity. I mean, there you have it, right? Yeah. I'm just sitting here like preach, just let it happen. Just, I'm just going to keep listening. I think I want to talk a little bit about, you know, I think the entrepreneurial learning initiative itself is designed to address some of the things that you're, you're referencing here, but not even just in classrooms, but in the business aspect. So can you provide a little bit of background on the book and the Ice House curriculum and kind of how you got to that point and what that does for the mindsets that we're talking about? Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm happy to, Amber. So. Um... You know, in 1991, I started on this journey. I began interviewing entrepreneurs. I began reading whatever I could find. I was trying to understand. I really didn't know what I was looking for or how to go about looking for it. In 2007, I got hired by the Cisco Entrepreneur Institute. And they hired me in part to do a gap analysis on the entrepreneurship education ecosystem in the U.S. Cool. And there is really where I got like sort of the, the camel's nose under the tent. I really got to see that the way that entrepreneurship is being characterized in the classroom is largely divorced from what the typical entrepreneur is actually doing, right? So Cisco then gave me this platform to go around the United States and start interviewing, you know, the typical entrepreneurs, the, the entrepreneurs that don't necessarily make headlines. They don't have 
you know, big ideas or they're not tech entrepreneurs at Stanford or Harvard, you know, they start with a few hundred or a few thousand dollars. They have an unrecognizable idea that takes 20 years to really unfold. And so as we began to interview all these entrepreneurs, I kept hearing these really, really interesting stories of ordinary people who were doing extraordinary things. And, you know, I would encourage anybody, go sit down and have lunch or coffee with an entrepreneur. You're going to hear some really interesting stuff, right? So one of the stories that I heard, uh, I stumbled into a guy named Clifton Talbert. All, I met him on a few hour uh, notice, you know, two or three hours, uh, uh, sort of a chance in Tulsa, Oklahoma. All I was told that he was part of the Stairmaster exercise startup. And I got, I showed up in his office at the end of the day, three o'clock in the afternoon with a film crew, asked him how he learned how to think like an entrepreneur, like what inspired him or pulled him down this entrepreneurial journey. He explained that he was born in this very poor cotton community in the 1940s in the Jim Crow South in a little town called Glen Allen, Mississippi. And he was born to a teenage mother, didn't know a father. He was living with relatives, essentially, as a foster child. And he said, I was picking cotton. That was the expected way of life for people that looked like me. You know, he said, when I looked up up from my front porch, all I could see was cotton for miles and miles in every direction right? He said, when I was 13 years old, my uncle Cleve owned the local ice house. And I got to work alongside my uncle Cleve. And he was the one that taught me how to think like an entrepreneur. And that really inspired me. As I went on to interview Clifton and get to know him, I I realized that these concepts that his uncle was teaching him in 1958, in this small cotton community, were the same core concepts I had heard hundreds of times. I've heard them around the world. I've interviewed entrepreneurs in Latin America, North America, Eastern Europe, South Africa, Russia. It's the same story, right? And so we just use that story to demonstrate these core concepts that emerge from hundreds of interviews with these unlikely entrepreneurs. And so that became the basis of the the book is Who Owns the Ice House? And the subtitle is Eight Life Lessons from an Unlikely Entrepreneur that became a book that, you know, you you mentioned in my my bio that uh, Who Owns the Ice House became a a national bestseller, internationally recognized now and translated into several languages. And it became the basis for a curriculum to help educators encourage students to think like entrepreneurs, not necessarily to start businesses, but to think like entrepreneurs. What I think is really also fascinating and it, it, on, a, on a logistics sort of school level, you know, we work with schools all the time and, and a, big, a big barrier to change is that because of all of the testing, because of all this, we don't have time. And I'm right on, you know, with teachers in that they don't have time. Um, and it does take really good leadership to make a change. But with the Ice House, what's really amazing about it is that much like what we do at EntreEd, we you can put it anywhere, really. You can put it in any in in just about any curriculum, any content area. You don't have to have a special teacher. You don't have to have a, a whole special class designed for it. You can, but you don't have to. And you can take 
pieces and use them that the way they make sense in your classroom. I just thought that was such a great way to sort of break down that, that big, huge barrier into for teachers into bringing entrepreneurial mindsets to students. Because yeah. that's always our first, our first hurdle is getting over that wall. As a result, what we see is, a, is an enormous increase in student engagement, right? We become much more engaged in learning when we're trying to find the answer to our own questions. And, and so, you know, the correlation is quite clear that, that uh, uh, when students take the Ice House program, they become more intrinsically motivated to learn. They also tend to persist longer. So those are two really important outcomes. And, and so I, I think of, that's really the pain point for, for in the K-12 system. You know, the Ice House program has been uh, modified or adapted for middle schools now, um, being used very widely in, in high schools as well. But, but that, that's really sort of the pain point. It increases student engagement, creates an intrinsic uh, desire to learn. What's really amazing too is that um, I, I was just at a meeting the other day talking about discipline issues um, in my own children's school. And I, I wanted to shout, shout out, but I knew better <laughs> than to cause a scene. When you increase engagement and increase in the you know, intrinsic learning, intrinsic motivation increases engagement, and engagement is inversely proportional to discipline issues. So engagement goes up, the discipline issues go down, and that's been proven. There's study after study to show that, and, um, but we're not, but by and large, that's not something that's happening, and that's a, that's a, big, a big frustration, and it's a, it's a problem that I feel that, that the Entrepreneur Learning Initiative has done a really great job of solving. If we could just get that message to everybody, we'd be in good shape. <laughs> well, that, and that's a big part of what we do, Toy, is help people understand how to inculcate entrepreneurial ideals and lessons into any classroom, regardless of the discipline, right? To help educators understand that this is a discovery process. Not everyone wants to start a business but we're all interested in discovery. We're all interested in finding new opportunities. And that's what it's really about for me. It's not, you know, it, to me, it's not about how much money you make. It's about watching ordinary people unfold and, and make an impact in the world and develop as humans. That's what this is about for me. You're so right on, Toy. The discipline is a byproduct. We're playing whack-a-mole, right? It's a byproduct of boredom. Yep. Right? And so the discipline becomes the other, uh, and it's, it's the carrot or the stick. The meta-analysis on the research is quite clear. The, the threat of punishment and the use of extrinsic rewards letter grades, gold stars, dollars, what have you, actually undermine intrinsic motivation. Yeah. Yet our systems of education are basically, you know, 100% reliant upon carrots and sticks, extrinsic rewards. And we can't, you know, the funny thing is we can't see the correlation, right? The cause and effect correlation is not clear to most people. And that's where the wheels fall off the wagon. And, and, and you know, 
I, I think Deming is, is credited with this idea that every system is perfectly designed to create the outcomes it's creating. This conversation actually took a turn that I'm so interested in. This is, this had no, we did not have this scripted at all, but um, I, so I'm in a program at UPenn. It's a master's of education entrepreneurship. And a current class that I'm in is design of learning environments. And there was this whole section on motivation. So I'll have to send you our readings on those, but it's mirroring exactly what you're talking about is when we value extrinsic factors over fostering intrinsic qualities we're diminishing innate abilities to discover and be curious and have all these kind of internal drivers around the entrepreneurial mindset. If you want to understand why entrepreneurial people are so engaged, so reliable, so resourceful, such good critical thinkers, so creative, resilient, resourceful, whatever, all the attributes we wish to see in our children, our students, and our workers, if you want to understand that, stop looking at the individual and look at the nature of the goal they are pursuing and their relationship to that goal. And that's where how you explain the behavior. But most of us are still, you know, walking around with this sort of idea that you know, it's all about your personality traits. You're either born an entrepreneur or you're not. And, and my message to educators is we, we have to stop thinking of entrepreneurship in this binary way. You either are or you're not. We have to recognize it as an expression of an innate human drive. The, the entrepreneurial spirit is the human spirit. It's not just in some of us, it's in us all. And that's really the point. So if we're in school, certificates, letter grades, gold stars, you know, or the promise of a better paycheck, that those are really, really weak motivators. And one of the things we do in the Ice House program is the very first assignment is to begin a process that we call self-authoring. Start writing about the future, a compelling future. Right, to sort of engage, it becomes, creates a pull strategy where we become intrinsically motivated rather than extrinsically motivated. Yeah, nowhere in my entire academic career did anyone, any educator, any authority figure, anyone ever stop to ask me what I was interested in or what made me tick, ever. It was, you have to get to college, you have to do this, you have to, it was always for fear of grades, for fear of my parents coming down on me, for fear of disappointing people, but it was never, this is what I'm really interested in. This is what I, this is what engages me. This is what lights me up. And we don't, we still don't do that. And that's, 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 that's unfortunate. And what we're doing in Ice House then is like, then we're showing there are video case studies baked into the program of people who have come from, you know, significant adversity who have overcome their adversity by embracing an entrepreneurial mindset. So what this provides for the student is a relatable social model. Like talking about Henry Ford or Thomas Edison or Elon Musk, this self-authoring idea, Pennebaker is a guy, I think he's at UT Austin, has written extensively about this, that orients the mind towards a positive future, right? Which sort of, 
leads to this idea that, that um, you know, the late Shane Lopez defined hope as the belief that the future will be better than the present, coupled with the belief that I have the ability to make it so. We also know that hope is the best predictor of academic achievement over SAT, IQ, any other academic score. Hope, as measured by Gallup, is the best predictor of how students will proceed what will it do in school? Oh, I love this. Sorry, I'm just like, I'm just taking it in because I feel like this is one of the first times that this conversation has happened where I'm toy, I have the same exact experience, right? And you and you came from New Jersey, you grew up in New Jersey, and I came from very rural Western Maryland where we both are from now. But it's amazing across the country how this same landscape is taking place in our schools and like the same experiences. And we've never been challenged with self-offering or figuring out any of that. We've been tested, tested through the systems. And so I'm just really inspired by it. Um, And you talk a lot about the stories that you've experienced where others have faced extreme adversity and they've overcome it, but maybe you'd be willing to talk about an experience of yourself with adversity and how you overcome it and how your entrepreneurial mindset helped you in that experience. I can answer that specifically, or let me start by answering it more broadly. And I'm not ducking the question, but what I want to point out is that, you know, I asked people this when I do lectures. Uh, uh, I just got back from doing some lectures in South Africa. And I, and I asked the educators, your very first question is, do you have a compelling goal? And we can talk about what compelling means, and that's kind of you know nibbling around the edges of intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. But something that you has you, you don't have it, right? Something that gets you out of bed in the morning, something you think about on Sunday mornings. The next question is, if you don't have a compelling goal, you know, the answer, the question is, why not? Right? But what I'm really getting to, Amber, in your question is, it's the compelling goal that keeps you in this state of what uh, a psychologist would call optimal engagement. It's, it's like a fight constantly. Every day you're forced to learn new things. There are challenges that are coming at you, you know, like you're out in the universe with a sharp stick and there are, you know, opportunities and there's also lots of threats but you're not in an established organization. You can't go down the hall to legal or finance or HR or whatever to solve your problems. You've got to figure it out yourself. And, and so it's the compelling goal that keeps the entrepreneur in the fight, so to speak, right? And so we tend to think our entrepreneurs are just, they're, they're, they're more fearless than the average bear. That's actually not true. There was research done at Wharton from from Adam Grant that said, like, experienced entrepreneurs are actually more risk averse than less experienced entrepreneurs, right? But what happens when the goal is compelling, you learn to subordinate your fear to a higher value, right? So I wanted to answer your question sort of, set the answer with that. I'm not particularly courageous or I don't have any attributes than anybody else does. 
I'm really, really interested in answering these questions, right? How can we be more innovative and entrepreneurial in our own lives? And how can we help others do the same? Now, you know, I could sit here for the rest of the week and tell you about the blunders, the mistakes, the setbacks I've made, you know, figuring out how to, you know, you know, I, I hiring, you know, flushing $250,000 down the toilet in, in one mistake, you know, just, just, you know, and, and some days you don't want to get out of bed. But the goal is to me, this particular goal to me is just so compelling that I just continue to learn and strive forward. But the other nugget in this question, Amber, is when you're pursuing a compelling goal, your brain, your mind is then oriented towards a positive future, right? So what happens then? Well, you're less susceptible to distraction. You're less susceptible to social media or squandering your time and resources on ornamental things or entertainment or whatever, right? It also shifts the locus of control to internal. We don't have a compelling goal thing. I have this really compelling goal, but my mom's going to do it for me, right? Uh-huh. So, so but the, 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 what happens when we have a compelling goal coupled with an internal locus of control, when things go wrong, we have to take responsibility. There's no better way to learn critical thinking than to pursue a compelling goal in uncertain circumstances. Because you won't survive for five minutes as an entrepreneur if you try something and it doesn't work and you just say, oh, people are too stupid or the world is, you know, too stupid and, and, and it just won't work. You have to be constantly learning from your experiments and taking responsibility for your own failures, which is really another wonderful, wonderful side effect of entrepreneurial activity. I'm so, yeah. So Toy, I'm so interested by this and I'm sure you're probably thinking this way too. Like the idea of a compelling goal, I've been trying to go backwards through our previous podcast interviews to see the compelling goal that they have. And like, I can name, I can recognize that they all have said their compelling goal, though they haven't listed it, but they all have that kind of compelling drive and compelling goal that's making them. And it's so interesting that you've actually given me a term to to identify that. I mean, one of our previous interviewees was Sam Seidel. And I mean, I'm sure you know, you can see her compelling goal. It's so interesting now that I'm thinking about this. Yeah, yeah. And then, so, so it's coming, comes, comes into clarity, right? When you see it, it's like, it, it's like, um, who was I talking to yesterday? I was talking to a lady from Beth, from Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And she heard one of my talks uh, where I'm constantly, you know, quoting Jaime Kassap from Google Education, in which he said, stop asking students what they want to be when they grow up and start asking them what problems they want to solve and what do they need to learn in order to solve those problems. Well, this lady, uh, 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 Audrey Chase, she, she went home and asked her own, uh, you know, high school son, that very question, and she said she was astonished at how he just completely flipped the script, and he became so you know enamored with that idea 
and it really, you know, it gets at something, Amber. It's deeper, right? Yeah. That 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 we're, we we don't really think about this, but so inculcated into our collective mindset or our culture, it's the same thing. Is this sort of industrial era ideal that education is? is to bring the younger generation into the logic of the present and teach them how to find their place in it. And that certainly needs to happen. But what's missing from that is we also need to teach young people that the logic of the present is kind of messed up. And it's flawed and it's not perfect and you can contribute to it. We need your fresh young minds to look at the logic of the present and point out to us what you can see that we can't, right? Mm -hmm. So we've got to, you know, we, what I'm really getting to is this underlying assumption that, that, you know, we're teaching students to become employee-minded. Just find your place and fit in. We're not really encouraging them to contribute. Yeah, we're teaching factory workers still. But it's so embedded in the, in our individual and collective consciousness. It was done to us, and we just—it's it, just—you know—that's how a mindset works. This is the deeply held, mostly unconscious, tacit assumptions and deeply held beliefs that drive our behavior that we're not even aware of. It's so interesting to me how we, we have a lot of schools that are, that are still trying to impart knowledge onto students. And, and for some of the earlier grades, some of that has to happen. But by and large, students, young people have more access to things that the, you know, the greatest generation combined ever had access to in the palm of their hands. And so what we need to start shifting and focusing on is how do we use the information? How do, we, how do we leverage the information that we have at our fingertips? And, and, and how do we use it in a way that where we can solve problems and identify opportunities? And we're just not, we're just not there by and large in the US education system. And that's, I think your goal and ours and <laughs> to try to, to move that needle forward a little bit faster. That's why Eli exists. That's exactly the problem that my organization uh, was created to solve, to help educators and policymakers, business leaders, community stakeholders understand the vital need to, to cultivate entrepreneurial attitudes, behaviors, and skills. The world has changed in ways that now require everyone to think like an entrepreneur, whether they work in an established organization whether they become part of the rapidly growing gig economy or they start a business of their own, they're gonna need to learn how to think this way, right? And if you think of entrepreneurs, these are the, entrepreneurs are the change makers. They're you know, improving existing products and services. They're inventing new, they're creating jobs that revitalize our community. They're, they're, they're solving social, economic, you know, climate problems. They're, they're, I mean, they're, they're arguably the most important player in a modern economy. And yet the subject of entrepreneurship is virtually absent from our K-12 system. 
That is 100% true. And you know what, Gary? I think that Amber and I could sit here and listen to you talk for the rest of the week and then some, but I think we're <laughs> rapidly approaching <laughs> the 40 minute mark maybe. Um, and so we, we should probably try to wrap it up. We are just thrilled that you were here today. And you know, I'm a big, 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 big fan. So this has just been wonderful. And, and I hope that maybe we can continue this conversation on a future episode, because I think that they're going to be people yammering for more, for more Gary. Can you share with our audience um, how somebody might reach you, reach your organization if they're interested in finding out more about the Entrepreneurial Learning Initiative, ELI, or the Ice House? So, so the Entrepreneurial Learning Initiative, we are dedicated to entrepreneurial mindset education, training, workshops, professional development programs. We serve uh, individuals, organizations, academic institutions around the world. You can learn a lot more about us on our website. It's elimindset.com. That's Entrepreneurial Learning Initiative, elimindset.com. Uh, if you want to learn how to um, become a trained facilitator to bring the Ice House entrepreneurship programs to your community, your classroom, you can uh, sign up for one of our uh, public facilitator trainings. We, we have one coming in uh, June in St. Louis. We have many private trainings throughout the year around the country and across the globe. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at G Shoniger on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook. You can find us at, at Eli Mindset on Twitter. Uh, we have a lot of resources on our website. There's a lot there. So uh, hopefully this is helpful to educators. Uh, uh, Amber and Toy, I very much appreciate it. I'd be happy to come back and do a part two if uh, you think that would be useful. Sign them up. Tremendous. We, we have it on tape. <laughs> There's no tape anymore. Now I'm dating myself. We have it recorded. <laughs> well, I really yeah, appreciate no, what you guys are doing. I mean, I, there's a, this is a really, this is really, really important work that you guys are doing. And I'm, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to share some of what I learned with your listeners. I, I just encourage you to keep on going. It's a good fight. Well, thank you. Yeah. And we're so happy that you were able to join us and definitely we'll follow up for part two. I think everyone will be inspired by today and they can't get enough of what you're saying and just, it's really resonated with us, I know. And so I'm sure it resonates with our listeners. So thank you so much. And I, and I want to tell everybody just as a last shout out, if it, read the Ice House book, it's really, really amazing. And it is an eye opener. If you do nothing else, it's just, a, it's an amazing read and, and a, an easy very digestible book. It's, it's awesome. It, it opened my eyes to a lot of things and I'm, and I'm already in this sort of world. So it, it's really a, a good book. Thank you, Toy. Thank you, Amber. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. Have a wonderful day.